Another Christmas is upon us. Kind of wish I'd arranged to spend it with somebody, actually. Still, never mind, it's you and me as always, Marina. Although, I can't say I really fancy doing much for the randomizer for Christmas, actually. Hey, you know what I'm in the mood to do, though? Let's just watch a film this week. Are you up for that? Okay, well, have you got any suggestions for a film we could watch this week? Oh, you've already got the Blu-ray out. Okay, what's that? Die Hard. Uh, yes, a couple of points there, Marina. Firstly, I've never actually seen Die Hard, but secondly, I know there's a bit of a debate around the issue of whether or not it actually is a Christmas film. And third, you know, it's the Jerry Anderson podcast. It kind of really needs to be a Jerry Anderson movie, I'm afraid. So, uh, no Die Hard for you, no Muppet Christmas Carol for me. We've got to pick a Jerry Anderson movie to watch over the festive period, and, uh, let's see what we've got here. Uh, Crossroads to Crime? Do you fancy Crossroads to Crime this Christmas? No? Well, can't say I blame you. Uh, how about, uh, Thunderbird 6? No Thunderbird 6, eh? Well, that only really leaves one last film on our shelf here. Are you happy with this one? Okay, well, as our Christmas special for the randomizer this week and next week, we will be watching Doppelganger, aka Journey to the Far Side of the Sun. Oh, yes, Marina, and then we can watch Die Hard afterwards. I must say I'm a bit surprised that that's one of your favourite films. <laughs> So, welcome to the randomizer, if you will, Doppelganger, aka Journey to the Far Side of the Sun, aka the last Jerry and Sylvia Anderson film. And we open with a lovely shot of this uh, Eurosec base in Portugal. It's one of those model shots that they were getting really good at with the, um, the movies where it almost looks like real life. And inside we find... Good evening, Sergeant. Herbert Long. And uh, George Mikel. File 7842. Authority, please. Uh, checking in to uh, look at some files or some records or something. And Herbert Lom at the time, of course, was uh, well known on British television for... Well, not, not, not just British television, but uh, around the world. But uh, particularly well known to British television viewers for his role in The Human Jungle. ABC uh, a psychology drama. He was a psychologist, uh, Dr... Quarter, I think that's a nice shot of him uh, removing his pen. Well, now my plan is ruined. From the X-ray machine. It's not a pen at all. It's a, a secret camera. Well, better luck next time, Doctor. Oh. See, he's joking about the fact that he could have taken a secret cam. He's not going to take a secret camera in there. Not, not. Um, oh, this is Doctor Hassler, isn't it? And, and I keep going to call him Doctor Corder because of the Human Jungle. The other guy checks out clear. Heading into Vault 9. And this is quite an elaborate set for a, for a room we'll never see again. With characters that we're not really going to see much of throughout the movie. It's an odd place to start the film. But it does uh, set up a rather effective reveal regarding uh, old Herbert Lom here. Now, we shall see. What shall we see? Well, he's studying all these papers. Very closely, lots of numbers for Operation Sun Probe. That is, it's it's fun to see that that in this film because it's it's a name that you associate so much with Thunderbirds. It would be like I don't know if they were doing a Project Cloud Base or something. It's just it's so unique to that series. But here it is. My mistake. You were right. Top secret information on Operation Sun Probe, which presumably went better in this universe than. Uh, it did in the Thunderbirds universe. So, these two gentlemen have uh, apparently disagreed about something, but it's all been resolved now. 
But was this part of some secret plot? Because Herbert Lom is now in his dark room, taking off his dark jacket to do dark deeds. Firstly, pulling out his eyeball, and even though it's... Uh, oh, I, I hate eyeball-related stuff in, uh, in films, but... Uh, Thankfully, this isn't too gory. In fact, it's not gory at all because the eye is very clean. It's just... Oh, the horrible idea that he had that eye, his real eye, surgically removed to uh, make way for this camera. And of course... Film inside of what he was looking at in the... Uh, in Vault 9. And now we're going to see... The whole process of the development of film. Again, it's an odd choice to uh, to open your film with a film developing sequence, but uh, again, it's suitably dramatic. I think Barry Gray's music is doing a lot to uh, to lift it here. I think in sequences like this, you can just sort of let Barry take over, and uh, I'm, I'm sure with any other composer, this would probably have been deathly dull. Oh, this music is just gorgeous. The whole score for this film is gorgeous. This is a very nice looking and sounding film all the way along. And, uh, yep, the score is just one of the many things I'm going to rave about because, well, this is my only chance this week and next week and my only chance to talk about Doppelganger, so I don't want to miss a thing. Got lots to cover here. And, of course, he can attach the eye to a projector and give himself a little show. Look at all that top-secret information in more detail. And, uh... Yeah, signed Jason Webb. Oh, sorts of secret plans. And, uh... We go from the flashing of the eye into the flashing of the opening titles, which I'm not going to talk over because I need to save time by not playing the music, and also, I want to listen to the music. Okay, I have to talk a little bit over the opening titles. This music is gorgeous, but also, I think the, the visuals here are are aping a lot from Joe 90, the opening titles of Joe 90, just lots of computer activity. Again, this is, I think, in some way related to the plot, but uh, mostly it's just something nice and pretty to look at. And again, we have this teletype printer being used here, which again would be part of the opening titles of UFO. And I like how prominently as well Jerry and Sylvia's names are being presented there. It's nice. For the last time on the big screen. Yeah. That's a little premature, isn't it? You haven't won yet. You want a bet? Yeah. 3,000 million pounds. <laughs> and that's the introduction to two of our three main characters. Everything's fine. Although, really, despite the fact that, depending on what version of the film you watch, either Roy Thinnis or Ian Hendry get top billing, I think, and I've always felt, this is Patrick Wymark's film, and he just steals every scene oh, he's in. Sure. He's only got a hundred yards to walk. And Patrick Wymark is one of those things I'm going to be talking about extensively during the course of this randomizer because uh, I'll let you in on a little secret. I think he's absolutely marvellous. And he's holding a meeting. Gentlemen, gentlemen, please. With all sorts of representatives of the international scene. This is a momentous occasion for our organisation. Sun Probe 1 was an unqualified success. <laughs> we had some... Said no one in the Thunderbirds universe. This meeting is called to consider one single result, startling in its implications. Dr. John Kane, 
And all of these people that they're talking to in, in various locations around the world, they're clearly just... I think they're actually sat on the set for real with just a, a screen between them and the uh, uh, Weimark and Hendry in the other room. Set to take one picture a minute for the duration of the flight. Roll the film, please. The far side of the sun, over 100 million miles from Earth. Let's go on a journey there. The eyes of radio telescopes by the sun itself. Now, at this point in the flight, a strange thing happened. The gyro mechanisms aboard were influenced by another magnetic field. Now, if you watch your screens carefully, you'll see that the capsule cine camera was panned off the sun towards the force that was attracting it. That force, gentlemen, was the gravitational pull of another planet. Oh, there it is. Now, I'm going to hold the film here to show you the first complete photographic evidence of a new planet. A new planet in our solar system. Uh, doesn't look much like Earth from a distance, which is surprising. But of course it can't be to uh, to give a, a sense of mystery to the first half of the film. Instruments aboard the capsule report that it is in the same orbit as Earth, but directly on the opposite side of the Sun. Orbital speed, precisely the same as ours, is the reason it has remained undetected. What information do we have from the other systems on board? Not enough. Which brings me to the purpose of this meeting. Money. Yes, lots of money. Right, so Patrick Weimark and the reason he is in this film. Lisa, book me a scramble satellite call to NASA headquarters. Uh, there's Ed Bishop. We like Ed Bishop. It's already in hand, David. How come? Instruction from Jason Webb. Thanks. Yes, Patrick Weimark was at this time most famous for, again, he was a very familiar face in British uh, film and television at the time, but he was most famous for playing the role of Sir John Wilder in, uh, firstly, the series The Plane Makers, which was about an aircraft uh, manufacturing plant, and then boardroom drama The Power Game. And I, you know what, this is my this is my Christmas present to you. A recommendation, the highest possible recommendation I can give, go and watch The Power Game. Because not only is it a brilliant series in its own right, um, you will see a lot of influence on this film and also UFO. Um, yeah, Weimark was eventually the, the star of the show. Um, John Wilder was this scheming, plotting, ruthless, much like Jason Webb here is in this film. And he's, it's just a masterpiece of... Uh, of a character only too glad to agree this relatively small man strutting around offices yelling at people america's our only hope hatching plots and counterplots and counterplots to plots that hadn't been hatched yet and oh it's just so good and i know that jerry and sylvia were fans of the show so that's why he's here that's why you see a lot of um kind of human drama subplots that really go nowhere in this film because you can't really you know you can have running threads in a television series you can't really have them in a film and have them you're gonna sit there go all that far and watch me take a man for one billion dollars the words of an egotistical megalomaniac maniac I'll have you know I played Sir John Wilder for six years. When one of your rockets blows up on the pad. And you better attend to that cardiac warning. And that's a line I find fairly ominous, because I, th I believe within a year or two of this, Weimark was dead. I'll make a deal with you. And I think it was a heart condition. I think it was a heart attack. You stick to the science. Brought on by, in part... Politics. 
an awful lot of drink. I'll stick to the science if you handle the politics. And speaking of a lot of drink, we have... Uh, yeah, I don't want to go into to too much of that, but uh, yeah, both Patrick Weimark and uh, Ian Hendry quite uh, quite fond of the old uh, quite fond of the old booze. And Ian Hendry, I find, is an actor who he's either really great to watch, or there are times when he just can't be bothered, or he's a bit distracted, or he looks kind of ill. In this film, straight, I think he's he's really trying to get to grips with the material. I, I don't think he quite fits a sci-fi-ish setting. Okay, Jason, it's no go. Also, although he is one of the stars of the film, he's not really as prominent as the character could be. In our own solar system. He works better as a leading man than a sort of supporting character, which is really what he plays here. We ask our friends for a few dollars, and it's no go. One billion dollars, Jason. Cheap at twice the price. You sure about this? Yes, give it to Jason tonight. But I suppose it's not his fault that Patrick Weimark is just acting everybody else off the screen and chewing the scenery left and right. You wouldn't want anybody else to get there first, would you? And going back to the power game and the plane makers, it's, it's also worth a look, um, not only for how it influences this film and UFO, but also you see a lot of actors from that show turn up here and in UFO. Case in point, uh, Norma Ronald was... Weimark's secretary, Miss Lingard, in The Plane Makers, and then in The Power Game, and now she's here playing Weimark's secretary in this, and then she'll go on to be Ed Straker's secretary in UFO. So we just look at her and think, oh yeah, Miss Eland, UFO. But no, it started with The Plane Makers. Tell Newman and Lisa I want to see them at 730 Yes, Mr. Webb. And also uh, several other actors from, from The Plane Makers and The Power Game that are in this film are uh, George Sewell and uh, Philip Maddock, among many, many others. So, yeah, it's, it's the last time I'll mention The Power Game. Just go and watch The Power Game. That's my Christmas present to you, that recommendation, even though you didn't get me anything for Christmas. And it's fine, you know, I just... I mean, there's still a few days, maybe. Maybe by the time this goes out, maybe someone will have given me something. But uh, at the moment, all we have is uh, John Kane's resignation letter, which makes Webb very unhappy. And uh, yes, we're uh, on location in Portugal. This is where everybody lives in this film. Eurosec headquarters and launch facilities are in Portugal. And I'm sure it's nothing to do with the fact that the Andersons enjoyed holidaying there. We've housed all findings, computer programs, and visual data from Sun Probe 1 in Vault 2. Access? Restricted. Yes, this is Webb now is getting reports from Security Chief Mark Newman, played by George Sewell, and... Near certainty of a security leak re splashed out. Lisa Hartman, who... We picked up radio signals again this morning, and got a bearing. Also, I'm not entirely clear on what her job is before she becomes designated love interest for the film. Transmission. And there are 86,400 seconds in a day. Ah. All right. You made your point. So, there you go. Now you know. That access restriction must be widened. To whom? Hassler. Dr. Hassler. You're serving up information on a plate to our prime suspect. Not entirely sure how they got on to the fact that uh, Herbert Lom is... Your responsibility is this. ...is the security leak. He shows his hand. I don't want an arrest. Ooh. Understood. And again, that's the first sign in the Anderson universe, which, something which would be carried on through UFO, is um, an organisation that really is not accountable to 
to the law and uh, takes their own security into their own hands in very brutal ways. I, I'm not entirely sure where that that idea comes from. And yet it's oddly fitting from this for this um, the Anderson world which has generally been quite hopeful and optimistic. Then we get this darkness in with Captain Scarlet and then we get this kind of thing. In, in this film and, and UFO, this, um, you know, we can just kill off our operatives if we think they're, they're, they're naughty chaps. And uh, I think there is also a bit of a, a homage to Psycho through this scene as well. But, uh, yeah, Newman has shot Hassler. And he's dead. Very dead. This is cool, though. Oh, and they get... It's amazing. Drop an olive into one glass, drop an olive into another glass, drop Hassler's eye. A new planet could be known outside Europe in the States. Into a glass. And it lands pointing straight at the camera. Shortly be underway by somebody else. Well, don't panic. It would take some time. Yes, we'd have to check out your information, examine Hassler's body, see the transmissions you monitored, check the manufacturing origins of... They were monitoring transmissions. That's how they found out. After Mr. Folson immediately... And put John Kane in the picture. And here we get a, a crucial uh, moment in Anderson history. Well, can I have another look at the uh, photographic equipment? Ed Bishop and George Sewell working together. Does our side have anything like this? We have now. And that moment is apparently ad-libbed on set by those two actors. Give that back to Kane, will you? Tell him I accept his apologies. So yeah, not only is, is the power game a huge influence on this film and UFO, this film is also an influence on, on UFO. It just keeps having this knock-on effect. Now there has been a leak. Yes, and I'm left with no choice. I agree. It'll be up to you to persuade the rest of the community. But uh, I believe Ed Bishop wasn't originally going to be in this film. His role was originally cast and shot with uh, Peter Dinley, voice of Jeff Tracy. Full information sharing. Guaranteed. And then it was felt that uh, Dinley and Weimark just looked too similar for it to really work. An American astronaut on the team. I've already called Cape Kennedy. I can see the resemblance, certainly, but the voices are completely different. I don't think it would have been a problem, considering that uh, Poulsen isn't in the film much. Glenn Ross. Ah, yes. Here comes Glenn Ross to head the uh, mission to the new planet. Arriving on... Uh, on an aircraft that I can't decide if I love the idea of this or if I detest it, if it's sort of Anderson in excess. Um, this uh, space shuttle plane thing is landed and instead of just letting the passengers walk off and maybe take a bus to the terminal, a lorry has to drive up to take the passenger cabin of the plane as if it's like a Thunderbird 2 pod and wheel that over to the hangar. Again, it's like... It's a nice idea. It looks very futuristic, but it also kind of feels just a bit, a bit overkill. I don't know how an how an air industry would uh, sustain this long term, but uh, oh, it does look pretty, and it does look very, very near future sci-fi, and that's uh, something I think this film nails quite well. And here he is. This is Ross. Oh, there she is. That's uh, thank you, Colonel Lynn Loring, as uh, Mrs. Ross. Roy Thinnis is Colonel Ross, and I believe they were married in real life at the time. Ross, my wife Sharon. How do you do? Hello. Oh, Sharon, that's right. This is Lisa Hartman, security. 
How do you do? Hello. Ross, she'll be your love interest later in the film. Kane, our project director. How do you do? He'll be going with you to another planet. Paolo Landi, public relations. And he'll be misbehaving off camera, so his subplot will be cut entirely from the film. We'll still cast him in UFO anyway, but he won't be there very long. Yeah, it's party time at Jason Webb's house, and my goodness, what a lot of extras. Gotta be getting on for about 80 people in this room. Oh, I also notice, up the back, Lynn, uh, Lynn Loring's Sharon Ross was chatting to a group of gentlemen, still is, one of whom is uh, John Kelly, who, who will turn up again later in the film as a Euroset guy, but was also Lieutenant Masters in UFO. I've been thinking, John, hmm? about the second astronaut or Captain Ross. Those are words you don't want to hear come out of a Patrick Weimark character's mouth. I've been thinking always ends in, uh, but in you having to make some kind of sacrifice. We need someone more flexible. <laughs> I love the way his mouth moved there, flexible. Someone who could take full advantage of any findings on the new planet, however bizarre and unusual they happen to be. You mean an astrophysicist? Me? The yeah, doesn't appeal to you? You <laughs> must be joking. Pagrania. Again, there's something great with uh, Weimark's character, whether here or uh, as Wilder. It's just, I've got an idea. You're going to do it. And there's no way out of it for you. You're going to love it. And again as well, uh, part of the fun of, of John Wilder in the Power Game was sometimes watching his insanely complex schemes come undone. Uh, and I think it's a similar sort of thing in this film. Uh, ultimately, a lot of the, the problems that occur later on are kind of indirectly the result of Webb rushing and pushing and you know he's trying his best to cope with the strange situation that he finds himself in fourth country commendably for the character he doesn't sort of cut himself off from the recommendations of scientists and experts but he does sort of he is still sort of we've got to get there first and this is this is going to be our discovery we don't want these americans uh, sort of getting their noses in some lovely integration of live action and model work here as the uh, rockets assemble. You're when this training start. Tomorrow, I can hardly wait. And I, I, yeah, I get the feeling with Roy Thinnis, at least in the early part of the film, he's he, he doesn't really want to be there. I get the feeling that that could be more the character having been sort of thrown into this weird situation. Because by the end of the film, he is far more far more driven and, and quite rightly uh, carries the story but yes we're having medical tests now Glenn Ross is is doing all right but John Kane is struggling a bit 400 450 500 I'm wondering if that's David Healy dubbing that extra it sounds a lot like him 650 700 also in that room we have uh, Philip Maddock as Dr Pontini Basil Moss as a technician, later played Dr. Fraser in UFO. 850! It's nice to, uh, to to see actors who would go on to get very, other small roles in UFO, like Basil Moss here and like John Kelly. Okay. I don't know, it's... it's I can only imagine that they were really nice people because their roles in this film are so minor... You know, no, I don't. I can't imagine anyone was thinking going into UFO. Oh yeah, let's get the guy who said retros to to play a doctor in four episodes of the show. 
Anyway, back at uh, the Ross's pad, Sharon is returning because she's had a night out with uh, um, oh, the public relations guy, pa Paolo Landi. Yeah, we briefly saw his head at the wheel of the car. That's the last time we see him. Drove into Lisbon to see the cathedral. Because, again, this is another removed subplot that uh, she's having a, an affair with Paolo. I could sleep for a week. I think there's also a deleted scene where Ross comes home, finds them together and throws them both in the swimming pool. Uh, I don't think the scene survives, but I have seen a photo of, uh, of uh, Lynn Loring halfway into the pool. And speaking of water, it's now shower time, which I gather caused some... Uh, some controversy among the censors back in the day. I had my first medical today. Well, maybe she has another shower later on, and uh, there's something to do with a, a silhouette of her body through the, the shower door or something. Good. Everything's all right. We're not starting that one again. And here's a good example of what I was saying earlier about subplots that don't go anywhere. In space, hundreds of days. You're subjected to radiation effects, and that's why we can't have children. Yes. In in a television series, you could have this as a subplot. You know, marital problems, or we can't have kids. Oh, she's lying, or whatever. Here, it's just given... Great publicity. What, 45 seconds, and then it's over? America's top astronaut. Sterile. So really, all it does for the film is, hey, look, these miserable people are miserable. Your doctors don't work for politicians, so we know it's not you. For God's sakes, I'm not about to go through this again. The brutal truth of the matter is that you went up there a man, but you came back less than a man. Nobody says that about my sperm. And here it comes. Maybe this is why we're not having kids, huh? Femina, oral contraceptive. If you have anything to say, you better say it now. Is that how you prove your virility? <laughs> Oh dear, not good. Yeah, again, I think this is the Andersons trying for the kind of thing they've seen in the Power Game and not really quite getting how or why it works. They know they've got to have some kind of of um, sort of marital strife drama, um, but they don't quite know how to integrate it into a film particularly. A way of attracting your attention. Certainly that kind of thing works much better in, in UFO. Again, that's only really two episodes, Question of Priorities and Confess Check A-OK, but it, it's so... It's so much more believable there because really it was just like that's the one scene where their marital problems, well, specifically the uh, baby having problems, get mentioned. That's tough enough for me, but it's hard for John. It's a crash course in space preparation. Anyway, Ross and Lisa are now at, well, Harlington Straker Studios. We recognize this lobby, don't we? I know why Jason wants to see you. And they're both wearing costumes that would later turn up in UFO as well. It's basically. Nothing, I don't think anything was wasted after this film. Well, we'll see about that. Costumes, locations, actors, props, models, it's all in there. Thanks for the warning. Even music. I'm forwarding the launching date, four weeks. You're pushing too hard, Jason. I know more about human nature than anybody else at Eurosec. That's why I'm in this office. Wearing this tuxedo for some reason that I don't have to explain to you in this scene. I am informing you officially that the launching date will be brought forward. Two weeks. Ah. Okay. Two weeks. Yeah, he's happy with that. Again, it's another sort of slightly... I'm going to keep mentioning the power game because it's Patrick Wymark and it's, it's the reason why he's here. But again, it comes to... 
we've seen political drama. We know this is this is good stuff. We like this. Um, how do we make it work within the show? Or just mention off-screen budgetary troubles. Anywho, Ross and Kane are... Well, they've parachuted out of a plane and now they're going to walk home. And surely this is a vital part of their training to land on another planet. Things tell me there's a little bit of transportation around here somewhere. Don't the rules say we walk? Sure. Hmm. Ah, they found a donkey. In the back of a cart to ride in. What's it like up there? Lonely. How lonely? Same as down here. No different. You mean you've got to have someone with you down here, up there? Yeah, it's got to be the right person, though. Otherwise, it makes no difference. No difference. I do like that scene. Also, the fact that they made such good time getting back to the uh, map painting of the base. This is the part we have to make look good. We're back uncomfortably early. And while I can't say that um, Hendry and Thinnis exactly you know, light up the screen with their, uh, their relationship here... Oh, that looks nasty, those uh, input sockets into their wrists... Yeah, it's, an, it's a nice rapport. I could go attached to them. And that's the idea. No, you could there be could have been better, but there was potentially worse. It's an odd pairing, but it seems to work quite well. And I like the um, the fact that that's kind of reflected in their conversation there, of sort of having the right person along, whether it's back on Earth or with them in the in the capsule. And Philip Maddock is... Uh, yeah, Philip Maddock does not seem happy to be here. <laughs> He's, you can normally tell when he's enjoying a part, and uh, I think because it's he's not playing a villain, he's not playing much he can get his teeth into, so he's sort of got that look of, uh, well, he's just sort of glaring at people. Whenever they say anything in this film, he always just glares at them. Oh, and there it is, the rocket being revealed to the world. With suitably appropriate music, because it's absolutely beautiful. And we have a mission control room here, banks of uh, computers and several familiar faces. We are going to cover those as we see them. And there's one, Keith Alexander, a.k.a. Keith Ford, a.k.a. Sam Luver. And there's another one, Jeremy Wilkin, a.k.a. You know what, there's too many too many names to pull up there. No T-wave depression. Because I think that's him doing the voice of that medical technician there as well. You hear his voice a few times in other places throughout this film. Lift off now, minus six hours, 51 minutes. And it was nice as well. I think the Andersons cast uh, Wilkin and Alexander because it was like, we need reliable, clear understandable professional sounding voices we know these two guys already let's get them in there we trust them and it works it's not the biggest role in the world but um pre-flight checks in four minutes was that gary files astronauts pre-flight checks in four minutes oh, could have been there's there's moments as well in this film yeah where you hear familiar voices and you're not entirely sure because you don't see the the faces but uh again it's it's a nice sort of culmination of all of the the people they've been working with through the 60s and rewarding them in little ways. No, I mean it. She loves him? Yeah, because he's Roy Thinnis and he's just so manly. Oh, and of course Thinnis was uh, 
was a, a familiar face to sci-fi fans of this era for starring in The Invaders. Capsule from launch control, switch to external. Tell that guy next to you to put his cigarette out. Oh no, they did that at this time in Mission Control, didn't they? Isn't there footage of like some of the Apollo missions and half of them are smoking? There it is, a shadow jeep and the uh, UFO shadow spacesuits. I think we're expected. Painted red, and uh, I believe Roy, uh, no, not Roy, Roy Thennis, Ian Hendry would wear one of these again uh, later in a, a short-lived television series, The Adventures of Don Quick, which I've never seen, but I've seen the a photo of a cover of a, I think, TV Times magazine where he's wearing this spacesuit, holding the helmet under his arm. making our way up to the nose cone in the lift again shows how how far the effects have come from just a few years earlier where there's a similar scene in sun probe and the capsule going up the side of the the, the rocket gantry doesn't really convince in the way that this does but obviously they had a lot more money to throw at this and jason webb is up there to see them off see them on their way give them a friendly word of encouragement or just glare at them and bark orders Jason oh. yes. Hendry clearly doesn't want to go you can see that in the expression on his face there's a bit of uh, unspoken resentment I suppose for uh, for Webb forcing him to go on this mission liftoff now minus one hour 26 minutes countdown continues and also in the bunker, Flight control, Colonel Ross. another, or oh, actually a couple of familiar faces uh, coming up here, doing medical checks on our two astronauts who are now sealed in the capsule. We have, um, oh, I think this is Peter Burton, one of them, who is Dr. Murray in a couple of episodes of UFO, I want to say Computer Affair and Ordeal. He was also the original uh, quartermaster in the James Bond films in uh, Doctor No. But even more famous, beside him, and he's not going to turn up on the screen now that I'm talking about him. Come on. Come on. Cabin pressure seems a little bit low. This is being checked right now. Medical one to flight control. Here we go. Pulse 74. Blood pressure, normal. Yeah, that's Burton. And who's this? Medical 2 to flight control. Dr. Kane. Pulse, 110. Blood pressure raised 150 over 100. Respiration, normal. It's only Nicholas Courtney. It's only the Brigadier from Doctor Who. There's, there's someone who should have made more than one appearance in the Anderson universe, really. But I suppose he would have been busy with other things. You know, there was that whole Doctor Who thing, playing the Brigadier, I suppose. We can let him off. Speaking absolute nonsense. Affirmative. Kind of redundant and filling out time. Affirmative. All recorders and the it's getting very tense. We're getting very sweaty. Brigadier is watching uh, Kane's heart rate go uh, all bloopity bloopity. Six, five, four. Here comes the music. Two, one, ignition. And here is easily the greatest rocket launch in in Anderson history. 
because, as you've probably heard before, it's a well-known story, but they shot this launch outside against the real sky and it just looks beautiful. And there's some amazing effects shots throughout the Anderson universe. There's some amazing vehicle launches, but I think the fact that you know this is real, it just adds so much. They had, I think they'd shot against the real sky on one shot in Thunderbird 6. I think as one of the lift bodies explodes, that's against the real sky. But uh, this is so ambitious and it, uh, it really pays off. It just looks lovely. And now as the control center staff watch the rocket, we close in on Wymark. As all his dreams come true, he's going to be the first to get his men to this new planet. Oh, it's so beautiful. Oh, I feel quite emotional. Hello? Movie? Is it broken? What? Oh, oh right, okay. That was a that was a long sorry, I was starting to get worried there. I thought something had broken. Uh yeah, that was a long hold on black. Well, she flies. Of course she bloody well flies. We're on our way. No need for that language. This is a family podcast. That's how you can tell we're on the big screen now. Oh. You wouldn't hear Joe 90 saying something like that. Ah, And here it comes, the, uh, the lovely sleeping astronauts theme. Again, heard in UFO, but um, composed for this film and... Uh, far better associated with this film as they uh oh this is something i hate I, I, this makes me a bit squeamish as well they've got these little ports on their wrists two ports on each wrists to plug life support equipment into and the computer it seems to be working their blood for them that their blood just flows out of their bodies and into the computer it's a bit gross oh, i think thinnis has got his wires tangled there that's probably not safe anyway as they settle down for bed this is where we will leave Doppelganger for this week. But we shall be back next week for the second half of Doppelganger, a.k.a. Journey to the Far Side of the Sun. Even though I'm watching Journey to the Far Side of the Sun because that's the only cut that's available on Blu-ray. But hey-ho. See you all next week. Sleep tight, boys. See you in three weeks. Let's hope the alarm clock goes off. And better, you made it. <laughs>